0: Welcome to Side Effects May Vary, the podcast from the Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at Monash University. I'm Divya Krishnan, and to start today, we're going to take you back to around the turn of the 19th century, a time when Britain has the most powerful navy the world has ever seen. And one of the major benefits of having the most powerful navy, aside from, you know, the obvious, colonialism, is that it gives Britain control over many of the world's vital trading routes, And then, as now, one of the most tantalising potential markets is China, both because it's very populous and also because China has a product that Britain desperately wants, a product that in fact the average British household is spending around 5% of its annual income on, tea. The problem is that as badly as Britain wants China's tea, Britain doesn't really have anything China wants in return. So it's hemorrhaging silver buying all of this tea. And it's fair to say that the solution Britain comes up with is really, really effective in the short term, but in the longer term, well, let's just say that the results are mixed. In fact, you could argue, and we're about to do that, that it's had an outsized role in shaping the geopolitics of the early 21st century. Kate Carthew picks up the story with Dr. Pierre Fuller from the History Department in the Monash Faculty of Arts.
1: The crown had sent overtures to China, to the throne there, to the court, to try to um, persuade the Chinese government to open up the markets there more to British goods. Um, and the British were bringing things like clocks, like optics, lenses, telescopes and things um, that were curios, but really did not have all that much promise in terms of in terms of um, trading um, for the volumes of tea. And so, um, fortunately, uh, in a twisted way, fortunately, the UK had this... Um, increasing power over India. And India was a place where we're not going to be growing opium in Derbyshire. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it, it was grown in, in, in Eastern India, um, and, um, and more and more that was seen as an entry point into the Chinese market. Opium had been consumed in China for, for centuries up to this point, but in many ways, it was a, uh, it was a high class a drug consumed by the elites. It was very expensive, it was mostly imported. And what began to change with the increasing volumes that the British were bringing from India into the Chinese market in various ways, um, it began to become cheaper, um, began to become more sort of adulterated, more accessible to to, to the lower classes. And so um, laborers and workers and so forth began to consume it in much larger quantities. Um, and this, be- of course, is more, more of a public consumption as well. In other words, before it was uh, done in the privacy of elite homes, and now it's seen um, in sort of opium dens and people are intoxicated in public and it seemed to be something that's um, not only affecting families um, and, fam- you know, and sort of the, the, the viability of families in terms of their finances, but also just production. Workers are, are more and more uh, being affected negatively in their, in their ability to work. And so the government becomes more and more concerned with opium, uh, uh, less as a, a drug of leisure and more as something that is taking apart communities. The Qing Dynasty was hemorrhaging silver um to pay for it, because that's the only thing that the Chinese are interested in trading. But at the same time, the East India Company, which was the uh, the company that had a monopoly over trade, Um, in India and trade of Indian items to China, lost its monopoly in the early 1830s. And so you have this, the the interest, the the various groups in the UK, all of a sudden, there are way more groups that can be involved in the opium trade at the same exact time where the British, uh, where the Qing dynasty is cutting down on it. And so um, in 1839, the the Qing government um, confiscates loads of uh, opium down in Canton in South China, which is the main port city where the Westerners are trading in. Um, and, uh, of course, the British traders see this as an affront. Um, and so there's a debate back in the UK whether there should be military action, um, and it's decided to send a, uh, a flotilla um, boats um, to, um, to, inf- to, to essentially start uh, hostilities with the Qing Empire to, to demand the ability to trade in opium. And so this, this ends up being several years of pretty much naval battles along the coast of China, and um, the, the British, by this point, had developed steamships, which were revolutionary in their ability to sort of go up rivers and to project their power and, and threaten communities in ways that on um, traditional boats were not able to. And so within a few years, the British um, are, are uh, on the verge of shelling Nanjing, which is China's second biggest capital, uh, their old capital, and the, uh, the court sues for peace. But that was part one. That was 1842. And um, there was a treaty signed. Hong Kong was given over um, to the to the British, um, but after a few decades, um, the British merchants were sort of still not happy with how much trade they were able to do with China, and so we have sort of an Opium War Part Two um, in the 1850s where a British um, flagged ship is confiscated, is raided, or is, is seized by uh, Chinese authorities, and this starts a second war, and it, it unfolds in a very similar way Um, Gunboats, again, are used and this time they go north up to Tianjin, the port that is right outside of Beijing, um, and they threaten to bomb uh, these these forts there, and then the uh, Qing Dynasty sues for peace once again. Opium had a massive impact on Chinese society at a time of increasing natural disasters, of, of droughts, of floods, and famine, and so forth. And so it was a period in which China acquired this reputation for being sort of the land of famine. And so they were very much in the headlines of the world. And so you had images of famine victims, sort of sick bodies and so forth, weak bodies, refugees. Um, and, of course, refugees were associated with the spread of disease. And so right at the time with the, um, with the rise of opium dens and photographs of lounging Chinese consuming opium, this is happening at the exact same time as you have these enormous ecological crises and these subsistence um, crises um, of moving refugees and so forth. Um, to add to the plot here, you have this is the era of... Um mass migration overseas. And so you have Chinese um, migrant laborers going, um, of course, down to, to Australia, to California, and all over the world in many ways. Um, and so this is the era of this idea of the yellow horde, the yellow peril. Where a lot of um, sort of labor groups in Australia in California were resisting the arrival of many of these Chinese laborers, seeing it as a th- as a threat to wages and so forth, and so um, opium in many ways sort of followed these these migrant labor uh, movements as well into Chinatowns. Um, it, um, they were consumed there, um, and in many ways um, this this was covered in the local in the local press all over the world. In in many ways, opium was seen as sort of part of the threat of the arrival of, of, of Chinese laborers, bringing disease potentially and bringing this vice of opium consumption. It's really extraordinary the extent to which this one drug reached into almost everything. For example, this was a period of militarization. So a lot of uh, local sort of people that would be called warlords that are creating those regional armies as the Qing dynasty was disintegrating and into the republic would finance their warring through opium production. Uh, another major problem was uh, the more opium that was that, that was planted, the less food could be produced. And so when you had these famines, you had uh, you had the fact that, um, Opium was putting pressure on the food market in ways that was making these famines even more destructive to communities and to peoples And so opium was sort of a scourge that was affecting uh, society in all sorts of different ways Way beyond just its consumption as a drug and its problem as a drug. It was financing armies It was um, exacerbating famines and so it was seen as as something that was destroying uh, China in all sorts of different ways the Opium Wars are certainly something that remain taught in Chinese schools, very much so. China's modern experience, um, its birth, you know, as a modern nation in the modern world, starts with the Opium Wars, and so this is very much the launching point of sort of China's modern condition. The position that China sees itself trying to establish in the world today, and Chinese all see themselves as part of this project. Um, is very much put in that frame of of how how the modern period started with this opium crisis, which was imposed on the country. Um, And so as it is asserting itself in the world again today, it is very much doing that in a way that keeps the opium wars um, in mind. This remains incredibly relevant in ways that might perhaps seem odd to, to your average sort of British, Australian or Western observer. You know that's something that was generations ago, 150 years ago, or, or it could be still on the forefront of, of of a lot of sort of Chinese views of the world. And so I think today, with um, if we if we're looking at the reactions to, for example, if it's the, the Chinese control of Tibet, for example, in 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 sort of territory, or in terms of China's um, handling of the COVID 19 crisis. Um, A lot of the emotional, the seemingly emotional reactions of the Chinese government um, about Western criticism is seen uh, as an affront uh, of its sovereignty. This goes back to um, the roots of that issue of sovereignty um, are the Opium Wars and the fact that this was an imposition on China that um, sort of bit by bit took away its sovereignty um, all the way into the 20th century.
0: One of the things that makes opium and its various derivatives and imitators capable of shaping the destiny of nations is that it has a bunch of different properties. Arguably, powerful as those effects are individually, it's the way they act in concert that gives the drug such power. I imagine that experts could come to different views on this, but it seems like the three most salient effects of opiates and opioids are that they are really, really good painkillers, they produce euphoria, and they're highly addictive. So the first two, the painkilling and the euphoria, they give people very compelling reasons to start taking the drug. And the third makes it really difficult for them to stop. In many ways, it's really the perfect product. We'll be drilling down a little bit more into those painkilling properties later on when we talk to Professor Simon Bell about the opioid epidemic that's very well established in the United States and has recently been gaining a foothold here in Australia. But first, one of the things that we wanted to do was to get an understanding of how severable the effects in this cluster are. Are they conceptually, or chemically, or biologically distinct? Or are they really just two sides of the same coin, or three sides of a three-sided coin? So what I mean is, or to make this about me, I'm really, really, really into Mars pods. You know, those chocolatey, wafery things that you get from the supermarket? I've actually banned myself from keeping them at home because once I start, I really can't stop. The minute I can even smell it or hear the bag opening, that's it, I'm done for. I'm utterly unable to stop myself. Is the dependence on opioids just the same dynamic ratcheted up to 11? Is it just that a user finds the experience so pleasurable and that overwhelming desire is effectively the same thing as dependence? Or are the pleasure and the addiction two distinct things? John spoke with Chris Langmead, From our drug discovery biology theme to try and get his head around this one. Chris has been doing a bunch of work on addiction and dependence and although his focus has been on alcohol some of his collaborators have been working on opioids and it turns out that many of those same mechanisms are at play.
2: When people are exposed to addictive substances like alcohol or opioids or cocaine we actually see changes in the chemistry in the brain. And uh, that's where the reward or the pleasure that's associated with those substances comes from. But in some people, those changes can have much more far-reaching consequences, sort of a rewiring or resetting of the system, which leads to an addictive or dependent state. The biological mechanisms that are the pleasure or the reward. Are you saying they're quite distinct
3: from the dependence and the addiction?
2: No, they're the same. It's just what happens when they they become sort of pathological, when actually they start to cause more damage than they are actually giving you reward. Addiction and dependence is a state where you continue to seek alcohol or other substances of abuse even though they're causing you damage or they're deleterious to you. So they're no longer necessarily giving you reward or pleasure, but you continue to seek out those substances compulsively.
3: Arguably, most of us have been in a situation where we have continued to drink alcohol even though it was not necessarily giving us pleasure. Um, How does that differ from addiction or dependence?
2: What we would understand in that situation is all of these substances are capable of giving you reward or pleasure, mm-hmm. and we are capable. Some of us are capable of perhaps binging on the odd occasion, even if perhaps perhaps not the most pleasurable. There's going to be a certain subpopulation of people who are very susceptible to changes in their brain. That's actually going to take that from being a, a rewarding or a pleasurable experience through to a dependent experience. So it's going to become habitual in those that population of people. And for those people they will then continue to seek out substances of abuse like alcohol or opioids even though they know in advance that it's not necessarily going to give them pleasure and it's actually going to further worsen their health or worsen their cognitive function for example. One of the areas of research is to try and understand what are those switches that occur in those Subpopulation of people? What are the changes that occur in an addicted person's brain versus a healthy person's brain so we can understand the disease, pro- disease process better and intervene therapeutically in the future?
3: So, if we take a step back and look at this globally, we're thinking of addiction independence as something that's beginning to be understood as a physical disease of the brain as opposed to the way it's originally been
2: viewed, which is as a species of kind of individual moral weakness. Is that correct? So you're quite right to say that our understanding of addiction now is very much geared towards it being a physical disease, a physical disorder. For example, um, you can scan uh, the brain of a patient who is suffering from, for example, cocaine addiction and compare that to a healthy control, and you will see changes that underlie that disease process. In the same way, if I scan a, a, a heart of a healthy person or a person with Heart of someone suffering from heart failure, you will see changes indicative of that disease process. So we can see that there is a disease process happening. Uh, In that respect, um, we start to treat it as a disease that can be approached therapeutically. And what we've done here is started to understand those processes that are involved in the disease. So, for example, what we were talking about earlier, comparing Brains of patients suffering from alcohol use disorder versus sort of healthy controls, we actually start to see the changes that are occurring, the molecular switches. And if we get in, dive into a little bit more detail, we can actually start to look in sub regions of the brain that we thought, we believe control different processes. So there are parts of the striatum that control what we call goal directed behavior, essentially where we choose what we want to do. So we may choose to go down the pub and have a beer. Versus there are parts of the striatum that control habitual behavior, where essentially now you have less control over what it is that you do and drinking becomes a habit no matter how deleterious it is to you. And we actually start to see that those changes can occur where we see changes in the expression of the M4 receptor in areas that are controlling habitual behavior versus goal-directed or voluntary behavior.
0: Unless you've been living under a rock, you'll probably be aware that the nature of opioid addiction in the developed world has changed over the last decade or two. That is to say, while traditionally most people have found their way into opioid dependence by using the drug recreationally, an increasing number of people have originally had it prescribed to them as a painkiller. Historically, this phenomenon has largely been confined to the United States, but many of the conditions that gave rise to it there are also being found here in Australia. Kate Carthy spoke with Simon Bell, the Director of the Centre for Medicine Use and Safety here at Monash, about some of the research they've been doing around ways patients can manage their pain without the risk of addiction.
4: In Australia each year there's about three million people who take an opioid pain medication and we've found that each year there's about 1.9 million people who initiate or or start a a pain medication and uh, research that we've done at the The Centre for Medicine, Use and Safety shows that about 2.6% or about 50,000 of these people go on to become long-term users over time. And uh, long-term use can be particularly problematic, particularly if people transition from a a weaker opioid or a lower dose to a higher higher dose. And there's particular problems that have been associated with with high-dose opioid use. So these are issues like uh, overdose deaths, uh, of course, but also things like falls and fractures and are hospitalisations and also uh, motor vehicle accidents.
5: What are the benefits to opioids? Because they're being prescribed, um, I'm sure, at initially for good reason.
4: Yeah, the benefits are op- opioids are effective effective pain relievers when used appropriately for short periods of time at an appropriate dose. So in for cancer pain or short-term acute pain, then the benefits of opioids are, are well established. Um, they're less well established for a chronic non non cancer pain, so appropriate management of sort of non cancer pain, chronic non cancer pain would involve, I think, raising awareness about the availability of other treatment options, uh, possibly changes to to prescribing culture, and really having a, establishing what the goal of care is, uh, what treatment expectations are, and and also discussing the intended duration of treatment when opioids are first uh, prescribed. And I think it's likely that the, the safest and most effective way to treat non-cancer, sort of chronic non-cancer pain is likely to involve a combination of different treatments. So these might be things like uh, exercise or physiotherapy or, or non-opioid analgesics as well.
5: Can you talk a bit more about what's driving this increase? Sure.
4: So I think there's a range of factors that have resulted in the increase in, in opioid use. Uh, firstly, going back sort of 15 or 20 years, it was recognised. Perhaps that pain was under-recognised and under-treated. And there was a big push for prescribers to be able to, to better recognise and manage pain. And so I think that's been a key driver of the, the increase in opioid use. We've also identified particular problems with the uses of other types of pain medications. So the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. So these were medications like, like aspirin and, and ibuprofen or, or diclofenac. Uh, they've been associated with a, a range of adverse events and so uh, people I think have been looking for alternatives to to those medications. Um, it's also fair to say that the the increasing trend in opioid use that we've seen in Australia mimics what we see in other countries, particularly in the United States and and Canada. Uh, so in the United States for example, uh, there's been a, a rapid increase in the use of prescription opioid medications uh, particularly in the sort of the 2000s sort of early 2000s up to Sort of 2010, 2012. Uh, but there's been about 214,000, uh, one estimate suggested, uh, prescription uh, opioid related deaths uh, in the United States.
5: Where would you say that Australia sets? What are the differences between Australia and the United States?
4: Yes, certainly one of the concerns is that the, the trend of prescription opioid use that we see in Australia is mimicking the trend in, in North America. Uh, So, for example, about two-thirds of all um, drug-induced deaths in Australia at the moment are related to prescription opioid medications, and and most of these deaths are are accidental deaths. And uh, from 2016, it was estimated, I think it was about 680 uh, overdose overdose deaths related to opioid pain medications in Australia. Uh, So there's certainly some evidence that uh, opioid use in Australia is mimicking the situation that we've seen overseas.
5: What what do you have to say in terms of um, where there may be current disconnects um, in that space? Is that where the, the the problem can arise? And what do you think GPs? What needs to what sort of education needs to be rolled out to GPs to help manage this issue?
4: Yeah, I think there are a range of factors. So I, th- I think it's well recognised that pain treatment requires a multidisciplinary approach, and so I would say GPs have a very important role in terms of connecting people to different healthcare providers and health services that may be beneficial in managing their pain. And research that we've done at the Centre for Medicine, Use and Safety shows that about one in every 13 Australians who initiate with a weak opioid will then transition to a a strong opioid medication. So examples of weak opioids are are opioids like codeine or tramadol or or tapentadol, And stronger opioids include things like morphine and fentanyl and and oxycodone. We've also found that there's a trend towards initiating people on stronger opioids, and we know that stronger opioids are more likely to be associated with adverse events, such as the falls and fractures and the hospitalisations and and also overdoses. Um, In Victoria, we have the SafeScript program, which is a real-time prescription monitoring program uh, that's designed to allow uh, pharmacists and doctors who are prescribing and dispensing those medications to uh, determine whether or not it's safe to continue to do so based on knowledge of that person's uh, prescribing and dispensing uh, of opioid medicines.
5: What are the key steps the healthcare system needs to take in order to address the rapid prevalence of opioid use and addiction in Australia?
4: Yeah, so some of the research that we've done at the Centre for Medicine, Use and Safety is uh, about identifying groups of people who are most at risk of transitioning from weak to, to stronger opioids. And this knowledge, of course, is particularly important for planning strategies so that we can anticipate and also better manage the potential harms of opioids before they occur.
0: So far, we've spoken mostly about getting hooked. What about the other end of the process, getting off? Given what Chris was saying about the ways that dependence is in fact a measurable change in the biology of the brain, is a full recovery ever even possible? Or will treatment always be more about managing dependence? There are few people in Victoria better equipped to answer that question than Irvine Newton. Irvine is a graduate of this faculty from back in the days when it was called the Victorian College of Pharmacy. He was awarded a Medal of the Order of Australia for his work in minimising harm from drug dependence and in 2017 was named Australian Pharmacist of the Year for the same reason. In fact, he's known as the godfather of methadone in Victoria, which is a lot less sinister than it sounds. Amy Chen spoke with him.
3: Well, of course, I was a community pharmacist for many, many years, and uh, a lot of people who know me think I had this some inborn passion to become involved with drug-dependent people. It wasn't like that at all. Um, In fact, what happened was I had a pharmacy in suburban Melbourne, and I started another one, an extended hours pharmacy in Collingwood, in very inner Melbourne. And I had a partnership, and uh, we opened the pharmacy, and it was brand new, and it was functioning well, and so on. And one day my partner came to me and said, how would you feel about running a methadone program? And I nearly died because we've got this lovely new pharmacy, the place looks fantastic, it's working well, and we're going to have drug-dependent people coming in and out of our pharmacy. But um, partnerships are compromises. And so I said, yeah, well, okay, because he'd previously done it elsewhere. And so we started slowly, and within probably days, weeks, we had a couple of clients, and I grew to love it. And I realised how much pharmacy could provide for these poor, unfortunate people.
6: So what was the um, situation like at the time? Like when you just started doing this methadone program, was that a standard care already in other pharmacies?
3: We actually did some surveys at PSA and the Pharmacy Board, auspiced that, that study asking pharmacists, would they be involved, would they not be involved, why were they involved and so on. And there were about 30% of pharmacists who said they might be involved, the rest didn't want to know about it. It was seen as dirty, untidy. Who would want those people in their pharmacy? I had um, I had pharmacists telling me that people said to them, oh, if you, if you let those people into your pharmacy, the good customers won't come, things like that. So, no, attitudes were pretty terrible, really.
6: But was that what you actually experienced when you did run the program at your pharmacy?
3: No, I learnt really by the seat of my pants, I guess. I guess we ran a small program. We had just a few clients, and um, I guess I... You know, like everyone else, I looked at what the regulations were, what the guidelines were and tried to work within them and then tried to develop our own methods around that. Uh, it's one thing having legislation, another thing having guidelines, but you still need to develop your own way of doing things. And we did, and I think we started to do it pretty well, and we convinced other people along the way to do it as well, and there it went from there.
6: So um, just for the uninitiated, I guess, what is the methadone program? What is the... Um, I guess the overall goal yeah
3: i don 't even like the word program we all use it and we call it a program we don 't talk about people buying, being on a diabetes program we don 't talk them being on, being on a cardiovascular program it 's about treatment for people who are dependent on an opiate, and they need support they can 't live effectively and function effectively without that substitute opiate so it 's not really a, a program um, one of the things we 've done over the years is we've learned a lot about how it works, obviously, we become more experienced. And the, the key feature of what we provide is maintenance. I like to make an analogy with diabetes. You, know, you get someone stabilized on their diabetes drugs or their insulin if necessary, and you maintain them on their insulin, if that's necessary. People on an opiate uh, who require pharmacotherapy need that opiate exactly, in the, exactly the same way as someone who's diabetic who needs insulin. It's to help them maintain their, their existence, Um, so they can go about living a fairly normal life and address all the other issues in their life that that need addressing.
6: So methadone is the drug that you would treat them. Um, So what is methadone and how does it work?
3: Well, there are now two drugs. There's methadone and buprenorphine. Uh, When I started way back then, in the early uh, 90s, I guess, there was only methadone, so we had one choice. If you wanted to go on a pharmacotherapy for your opiate addiction, dependence, and, and again, I'll explain those terms later, then you went on methadone. At least these days, we've got two choices, methadone or buprenorphine. They're both gold standards, they're both fabulous drugs. Um, they're opiate substitutes, opioid substitutes, sorry. Um, they're synthetic opioids. Um, methadone was developed during by the Germans during the Second World War for pain relief, and it's a great pain reliever. They have a huge advantage in that they've both got a number of huge advantages. Long half-lives, so you only need to give it to people probably once a day, last them 24 hours without any trouble. Um, they, once you stabilize people on a dose, um, their tolerance to the drug doesn't keep increasing. They're the only two opioids that that's the case with. Every other opioid, every other opiate, doses keep increasing and increasing. so people use more heroin, they use more oxycodone and so on and so on. and they become more and more entrenched in you know, drug abuse and drug misuse.
6: Do they have any side effects?
3: Uh, well, they're opioids. So, they, you know, enough said. They have a lot of side effects, obviously. But don't forget, you're using them in controlled conditions. You're giving them in uh, titrated doses. So people can go about their normal existence. So, you know, it might be taxi drivers and truck drivers and factory workers, but it'll also be IT workers, and it'll be university lecturers, and it'll be doctors and lawyers and nurses, and pharmacists maybe. Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the great problems about uh, opiate-dependent tre- treatment is that we all assume that... It's all down and out people who live on the streets and shoot up in back lanes and so on. It's not. I had a client at at my pharmacy in Collingwood. He was a chief systems analyst at one of the banks. He arrived every day at 20 past 10, which was his morning tea time, in a Gucci suit. He looked a million dollars. You would never pick him. He was getting paid way more than we pharmacists were ever going to get paid. I had a guy who owned the local real estate agency. He'd come into the pharmacy, sometimes he'd turn on his heel and go without his dose because he saw his, his customers in our pharmacy and he didn't want them to see him. So, you know, you have to be careful about who you think about as the clients of people getting methadone and buprenorphine. In all the years of all the clients I've had, and I've roughly had, say, 60 clients in my pharmacy for 25 years, so I've known probably thousands of people who are opiate dependent. I've only ever known one of those people who never wanted to go off his methadone or buprenorphine. Every one of them, at some stage, wants to get off. I'm sick of this crap. I don't want this anymore. You know, I've grown up. I'm now in my 40s. I'm now in my 50s. It's about time I got off. They all want to get off at some stage, but it's really, really difficult. And no matter how much they want to get off, very few of them are able to. So people will try to get off. We can help help them support to do that if that's what they want to do not always the best idea to get off because when you get off then you still need the opiate and you often go and do the wrong things but if that's what they need then pharmacy can support that but we need to understand that people haven't got an easy choice about i'm going to finish tomorrow you know i've had enough of this i'm going to i'm going to get cold turkey i'm going to be okay because most people can't do that
6: so that is um probably a really big reason why opioid dependence is so difficult to manage because it's a lifelong thing it's not
3: yeah, I, I'm, I could be a bit provocative, but I, my view is that when you are drug dependent, you are pretty much drug dependent for life. It doesn't mean you will necessarily need that drug or a substitute drug for the, all of your life, but it's in the back of your, somewhere in your brain, there's something saying, and somewhere in your body, there's something almost requiring that thing.
6: Just hearing you talk about that it just really highlights the important role of pharmacists in in healthcare and particularly um, harm minimization um, do you have any um, more thoughts about that like what more can pharmacists do
3: look it's uh, to me it's absolutely core to what we are as pharmacists we're accessible which makes a big difference often say, and you don't say this too often in front of GPs, but the reality is the pharmacist is usually the case manager. We see the people almost every day. When they start with us, they have to come to the pharmacy every day of the week. You see them 365 or near enough to that days a year. The prescriber, the doctor might see them once a month and then once every three months and so on. We have a much better picture of how they're doing. So the opportunity to provide feedback. To me, it's a fam- fabulous, the methadone program, if we want to call it that, it's a fabulous pharmaceutical care model. You treat them, you provide doses for them, you adjust doses daily. And many of my colleagues and, and I do that daily. We have an open script with a you know, dose range and so we adjust doses according to how people are doing it. It could be daily that you're adjusting that. You're helping them going up and down if they're increasing the dose because um, they're not satisfied with the dose, if it's not sustaining them. If they're wanting to come off and go down, we're doing that with them as well. Um, we understand a lot about their health conditions generally. We know usually know what other medications they're on, or you hope you do. You often know a lot about their family. You know about their residential circumstances. You know about their other health circumstances, their hygiene, um, their nutrition, all those sort of things. And pharmacists can have a great input to, into all those things. Um, methadone and buprenorphine, pharmacotherapy via a pharmacy, is a great baseline treatment once you get people stabilised, then they can start looking at where they live and when they get up in the morning, what they're going to eat and, and, and when they're going to clean their teeth and have a shower and those sort of things. And that's incredibly valuable. Pharmacists have a huge role to play. The fact that for so many years we regarded it as out there and different and and still so many pharmacists don't want to be involved, why? As community pharmacists, surely we provide general pharmacy, like a general practitioner should be providing general practice In all the fields. We don't specialise in pharmacy. So why aren't we providing services for these people as well? More specifically, um, we've got an awful lot of people and it's it's a terrible shame. There's so many people out there who are now opiate dependent because of inappropriate use of of prescription opiates. How did that happen? Well, you know, I fell off my motorbike and I finished up in the Royal Melbourne or the Alfred and I was treated and they gave me some opiates because I was in terrible pain. And when I left, they gave me a bag of opiates to take away. So the pharmacy handed me a whole lot of stuff and they gave me Oxycontin and they gave me Endone and they gave me Panadine Fort. And I sort of went home and I sort of liked that stuff and it not only helped the pain, but I felt really good. So I went to my local GP and I got the GP to write me some more because I still had the pain, but I liked the other effect too. And that was six months ago and now I can't stop using them. And the question is, was that appropriate to prescribing? And where were the pharmacists? Were they providing advice? Were they telling people, look, do you understand there's a win and a loss with this medication? Sure, it'll help your pain, but there's some real dangers. If you don't need them, bring them back to me and I'll dispose of them for you. How many pharmacists actually do that? I think we've all got a responsibility and we need to own up to the fact that there are people out there who are, through no fault of their own, are now opiate dependent and we have to do something about it. And there's also a situation now where... um, some people are using heroin who started by using prescription opiates. These aren't people who used illicit drugs. They never used to heroin or anything like that. Why do they now use heroin? Because they're finding it harder to get prescription opiates. They can't convince the doctor to write the script. They can't convince the pharmacy that they should have it. There's now going to be SafeScript, so script will help people prevent getting the prescription opiates. But they need opiates, so what do they do? They go to the street and start using heroin. If you start thinking about drug dependence as a disease state, and an overall picture for a person, then you start to figure out what we as pharmacists might be able to do.
0: That's all we have time for today, and it's a shame because we've barely scratched the surface. That's why next week we're going to do a part two of this episode, where we explore the future of opioids. Because it turns out there's all sorts of really cool work going on in this space from attempts to develop variants that sidestep many of the common side effects to a piece of research into using opium-derived drugs to treat irritable bowel syndrome. So if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to stay tuned and subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts for part two. Thank you.